Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analyst Jason Moser and Ron Gross. And from 1623 Capital, Jeff Fisher. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, How you doing? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will dip into the Fool mailbag. And as always, we've got a few stocks on our radar. But we begin with big retail. Walmart's fourth quarter profits and revenue came in a little bit lower than expected this week. Holiday quarter... I don't know, Jeff. This is what we saw with Target's holiday quarter in that, bizarrely, the video games and the toys, they didn't do that well. Big retail, not big excitement, though. Yeah, Chris, sales were uh, same store sales were only up about 2% in the fourth quarter, and basically for the whole year, uh, 2.8% same store sales, Walmart US. So you're seeing this business, which is giant. I mean, Walmart has $520 billion in annual revenue. They're able to grow revenue by low single digits year over year. That's that's their goal now. That's their hope. Uh, but as you said, Chris, uh, retail uh, toys didn't do that well over the holidays. And we can talk about why that might be. But groceries did well. E-commerce did well. And uh, overall, as long as same-store sales are in the green, Walmart is still a relevant business. <laughs> I think it was neat to see the performance in grocery, because we talked before about how Walmart, you know, I don't think a lot of people really Make that immediate connection, right? I mean, it really is. I mean, grocery is responsible for more than half of all U.S. sales. And then on top of that, when you see Warren Buffett's recent big investment in Kroger, I mean, a lot of interest in the grocery space there as well. And I mean, when you've got Walmart and Kroger, which are really the two leaders, I think, in our in our domestic space here, grocery wise, anyway. For all of the weakness games and toys may have displayed over the holiday season, at least they've got grocery, right? Exactly. Yeah, I've been very impressed with what Walmart has done over the last few years, but also very impressed with what Target has done to turn their business. And I'm wondering, do I want to own Walmart at 23 times, or do I want to own Target at 17 times? Um, I might lean towards Target in this environment. Well, I would agree with you, Ron, I think, because as you just said, Walmart trades at 22.9 times. So you rounded up to 23. I did round, you know. Or maybe the price changed while we're talking. <laughs> no, no, I rounded purposely. <laughs> 23 times forward estimates, and its 10 year average is 15.9 times. So it's well above its 10 year average. Shares of Dropbox, the online storage company, up more than 20% on Friday. Fourth quarter revenue came in a little higher than expected. Uh, Jason, Dropbox says they're aiming to be profitable by the end of this year. What do you think? Well, if you ever want to get the market's attention, you do what management did in this call. Uh, the reaction, I think, to the stock today really is all about promises made, which is fine, but that means that they're going to have to keep them. Uh, the biggest question I have in regard to Dropbox remains um, how, how many people they're going to get to actually pay to use the service. I'm not saying it's a bad service. I just I think a lot of users out there are conditioned to just be able to use it for free, which is kind of nice. Uh, but to your point in regard to profitability, they did on the call say that they now aim to be gap profitable by the end of this year, and that means just straight up profitability, like a lot of these mature businesses that we that we love so much. They also raised their long term operating margin target to a range of twenty eight to thirty percent. That's up from twenty to twenty two percent. So that's a pretty significant boost there as well. And they see hitting that by twenty twenty four. Again, a promise made. It's a promise they're going to have to keep. Uh, going back to the paid users, though, I mean, it, it, paying users of 14.3 million up from 12.7 million years ago. 
but they have 600 million plus registered users, which is a lot. Now, <laughs> that sounds like that's analysis. Be, that sounds like it could be a great opportunity. I mean, the flip side of that coin, though, is that's a lot of people, and I'm wondering why that growth to paid user is still so slow. I think part of it is they're still trying to figure out their product landscape and pricing, and that's played out a little bit on on the business model thus far. Top line growth of 20% is okay, but I don't know that there's anything to really write home about. So I'm kind of on the fence with these guys. Tim Byers, he likes this company a lot, and whenever Tim talks, I definitely listen. Uh, just still not quite sold on on the future here, though. They also announced a $600 million share buyback plan. That surprised me, because this is not a profitable company. It is not the biggest company. It's like $9-10 billion in market cap. It, I'm just wondering why allocate the money towards share buybacks when, for an unprofitable growth company, maybe they could spend the money elsewhere. Yeah, but I mean, to, to that point, being such a young uh, company new to the public markets, I think a lot of times they'll Set that money aside in order to more or less be able to help offset dilution that comes from stock-based compensation and whatnot. So I don't think we would see any material impact to the shares outstanding, so to speak, other than to offset compensation. Yeah, and it's also it's just an authorization. It doesn't mean they'll actually execute, and they could do it over long periods of time as well. Yeah. I don't think you'll go in and see a six hundred million dollar open market purchase anytime soon. It is interesting to watch. So you have six hundred million active users. And you're only monetizing a fraction of them. It indicates you gave away something free of charge that has decent value, and now you're trying to unlock it with actual revenue per customer. And that's to that the tricky point, part. yeah, it is. And I mean, to that point, they're adding a new key metric for investors to follow going forward: an annual recurring revenue, which is great. I mean, a lot of these companies do base their models on this recurring revenue, and it's nice to get that clarity. I think that that probably helps steer that conversation a little bit further away from the actual number of paying users and more towards just their ability to monetize, maybe upsell, maybe exercise some pricing power. Uh, so, so we'll we'll follow that metric going forward, and and that'll certainly give us a better idea as to uh, the health of the business and how much they're actually able to grow. Another strong report from Texas Roadhouse. Fourth quarter profits came in higher than expected. And just for you, Ron, <laughs> Texas Roadhouse raised the dividend 20%. Yeah, I was going to mention that. It was just for me. Um, this is <laughs> a strong report. Comp sales up 4.4% at company restaurants, up 3.4% at domestic franchise restaurants. You saw margins widening on a restaurant basis. And that's despite labor and food cost pressures, which all restaurants are seeing. Earnings per share up 45%, but important to mention, it doesn't include an extra week. They're 53 weeks in this in that year. Um, they continue to open stores, opened up 11 company rep restaurants, including two Bubba's 33, which we keep saying we've got to make a road trip to one of these days. We will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and also, they they mentioned a strong start to 2020 with comp restaurant sales growth of 6.4 percent for the first seven weeks of the year. That's a really strong number, actually. And they're targeting uh, another 30 stores to open during the course of this year, as you mentioned. Increase the dividend, the seventh consecutive year of double-digit growth in that dividend, which now stands at 1.9%. So, Texas Roadhouse is a restaurant chain that we've followed for a bunch of years. Among other things, I think Ken Taylor and his team have done a really good job with the restaurant count. They, they never really seem to get out ahead of themselves. They just methodically open a couple dozen new locations every year. Yeah, it's measured growth, and it's uh, consistent comp store 
sales growth too. Those those are that's how you generate revenue growth right there, and they do it well. So you brought some math to the equation <laughs> on uh, on Walmart and Target and how uh, relatively pricey both of those stocks are. What about Texas Roadhouse? This is a company that's performed really well for a long time. Yeah, the last year not as strong as in and really in the past, maybe up only about thirteen percent over the last year. Um, stock trades about twenty-four times forward earnings. If you look at the average of restaurants, it's about twenty-five times, so in line. But folks like Domino's and Chipotle actually increase that average. If you look at the median, it's more like twenty-one times, uh, indicating maybe a little bit pricey. Coming up, we've got pizza and beer. So what more could you possibly want? Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, and Ron Gross. Before we get back to the news, quick request. I'd like to ask a small favor of the dozens of listeners. We have a brief listener survey. It would be great if you could take a couple of minutes and help us out. It'll help us learn a little bit more about you. It's anonymous. It is quick. And whether you just started listening or you've been one of the dozens for years, we'd really appreciate if you could help us out. Um, you, you can find the listener survey link right in the description of this episode. So just click on that and help us out. We'd really appreciate it. Fourth quarter results for Stamps.com were better than expected. How much better? So good that shares of Stamps.com were up 65% on Thursday. What? What is this, Jeff? Stamps.com has been one of the most volatile stocks in the past 12 months. Exactly 12 months ago, they announced that they were ending their exclusive partnership with the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, which which sounds great, but it actually no, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds great that hey, we have an exclusive partnership. But what that meant is that they couldn't sell to they couldn't form partnerships with Amazon or FedEx or so forth. And so they knew long term thinking, long term, we have to we can't be just working with one partner. We need others. So they shut that down. The stock lost about three quarters of its value last year, and now it's it fell all the way to the 30s, and now it's jumped all the way back up to 160. If that doesn't Hurt everyone listening who hasn't <laughs> bought it. Ugh, that hurts. So, what a great recovery, but it's still just getting back to where it was prior. So, short story is results are better than than were feared, and they still have a relationship with the U.S. Postal Service. It's just no longer exclusive. How much of this pop was uh, short sellers sort of covering their short? I have to assume it was some percentage because I know that one of my thoughts last year when they announced, "Hey, we're." We're breaking up with the U.S. Postal Service. One of my thoughts was, there's a chance. I'm not betting on it, but there's a chance they completely go out of business. There was a chance, uh, and I think that's why the stock was so volatile, and that's why it's responding so much to the upside now. They they signed a relationship, a new partnership with uh, UPS in November, and uh, the reason I think the stock popped so much, 65%, is the earnings per share they reported for the quarter was two dollars and twelve cents. And that was against a 93 cent estimate, so more than double the estimate. So everyone has to adjust their models going forward. They also said they expect revenue to grow this year a little bit, but that's so much better than was feared. So that all said, Chris, now that the stock has run back up, it's at 36 times expected earnings, so it's it's no longer cheap looking. Boston Beer sold one and a quarter billion dollars worth of liquid in the fourth quarter, but earnings came in lower than expected. Shares of Boston Beer down a little bit. Jason, uh, we've seen the 
maybe struggle is too strong a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. We've seen the struggles with Sam Adams, sort of the the best known brand that Boston Beer has. But over the past year or so, they've really done well with hard seltzer. Yeah, I mean, this this really does feel like Boston Beer is becoming less and less a beer company, and and maybe that's not such a bad thing because this quarter's results. Was was not thanks to Boston Beer. I mean, it was not thanks to Samuel Adams. It was thanks to Seltzer primarily, and and that's okay. Uh, but if you look at depletions, which is the that represents the sales from distributors to retailers, I mean, you remember just a few years ago we were talking about these depletions of negative eight percent. I mean, they couldn't get out of their own way. Depletions uh, th- this quarter were up twenty five percent. If you exclude the Dogfish Head acquisition that they just closed, they were still up nineteen percent. Now. The reason is because of seltzer. It was not because of of Samuel Adams beer, and that could be a problem. Um, Gross margin took a big hit down to forty seven point four percent from almost fifty two percent a year ago, and the main reason for that is because of seltzer. They're essentially having to completely reshape their supply chain to account for uh, this this massive pivot in what the business really is. So, you know, I think. The good thing for investors and for this company, it is a very long-term oriented business, right? Jim Cook, the founder, is still helping lead the way here, and he does have that long long-term focus mentality. Um, but it, they still need to figure out a way to rekindle that Samuel Adams brand. It is really losing share quickly, and and I think part of that was because he was so slow to the draw on developing a good IPA catalog, and IPAs really have taken over the the craft beer market. The upside is he was very quick to make those investments in seltzer. So you've got uh, earnings growth here. You've got earnings for the for the full year targeted at eleven dollars and twenty cents at the mid range. That puts shares today at around thirty five times full year estimates. I don't know that it's necessarily what I would call cheap, but I think it's also for a reason because the company has shown the ability to pivot and and adjust in times of of uh, of. Challenging times, I guess, and and so uh, you know, it, I I don't know that I would look at this as an ideal opportunity today, and most of that comes from the weakness in beer. But kudos to them for for the performance in seltzer because it's making a big difference. Shares of Domino's Pizza hitting an all time high this week after strong fourth quarter results. Uh, Ron, Domino's has grown their same store sales every quarter for nearly nine years. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. U.S. comp sales up 3.4% and international up 1.7%. That was a little bit light, but it's 104th consecutive quarter of international same store sales growth. And as you said, 35 consecutive quarters for U.S. store same sales growth. So, really impressive. And they continue to open stores 141 U.S. stores, 351 international during the quarter. The big story here is that companies like Domino's have to compete nowadays with folks like Uber Eats and Grubhub. And they're actually doing a better their job now. They're adding new menu items. They're being promotional when appropriate. They're focusing on faster delivery to more locations. They've now got a loyalty program with more than 40 million people enrolled. So things are going quite well. There, as I said, um, with Texas Roadhouse pressure from higher food and labor costs. That's just the way it is. But you saw earnings per share up 19%. That's partly because of a two million share buyback as part of a recapitalization. But still, very strong results. So we were talking in our production meeting. One of the companies we expect to see go public later this year is DoorDash. I look at results like this from Domino's, and it makes me think that companies like DoorDash that are just competing against Domino's, um, I don't know. It makes me scared for them. It makes me scared for them and the shareholders who buy into the IPO. 
Domino's has been doing delivery for a long, long time, and DoorDash is new to it, and the model is more fragmented, and they don't control it as much as as Domino's controls it, and they can make adjustments and pivots. Um, and so it, it's going to be tough, but it is interesting because, as we've said before, it's not just Chinese and pizza that you can get delivered anymore, and then that's got to take a bite out of out of the business. Well, I mean, isn't it? It's just a matter of financials. If Domino's can get the right contracts with DoorDash and Uber Eats and so forth, why not just go multi-channel? And then when people are are checking out Uber Eats and they see this brand they obviously know well, they're like, oh, well, we'll we'll get Domino's tonight. Right. Yeah. They've they've resisted. They've resisted going to to the other folks. They want to retain that control. Um, they think it's best for the franchisees to to retain that control. Mm. We'll see what the future brings. It's it, the landscape is definitely changing. Bath and Body Works has put up good quarterly sales numbers, fueled in part by their line of scented candles. And you know who's been paying attention? McDonald's, <laughs> because this week McDonald's unveiled some limited edition swag for their Quarter Pounder Fan Club, which is a club that apparently exists. Included in the swag, a T-shirt, a bumper sticker, and a set of scented candles that smell like the ingredients of a Quarter Pounder. So, Ron, you've got a little scented pickle candle, mm. one for onions, ketchup, <laughs> sesame seeds, and yes, a little candle that is supposed to smell like 100% fresh beef. As long as it's not a filet fish candle, I could <laughs> maybe deal with the burger, but that, that's pretty disgusting. Give uh, Kemchinski and his team some credit. There's not a filet fish fan club. There's a Quarter Pounder <laughs> fan club. I haven't had a Quarter Pounder 20 years, it's got to be. So, does McDonald's now qualify as a lifestyle? I mean, I know last <laughs> week we were talking about this, and Emily had a pretty hot take in the, the difference between maybe, what was it, Taco Bell and, and, and KFC, KFC yeah. right? And KFC was clearly a lifestyle, whereas maybe Taco Bell, what not? I mean, what is McDonald's? I mean, uh, is White Castle a lifestyle? I think they, oh, they have a scented It's something. Candle I don't well. know if I call it a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> They've been selling hamburger scented candles for at least a decade oh, at wow. White Castle. So. And, you know, the, the cult classic movie, Harold and Kumar <laughs> yeah, go to White Castle. Right. I mean, McDonald's, for all their success, they can't claim that. Let's go to our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd. Uh, Dan, uh, I'm not saying you're a member of the Quarter Pounder fan club, uh, but if uh, the, these candles were given to you as a gift, which one are you lighting first? Okay, so here, here's the issue with that. Two things. One, the McDonald's Quarter Pounder, and I try not to eat McDonald's that much, but it is one of the most delicious things on the planet. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Uh, uh, two, I would I would put all of them up going at the same time to get that full QPC experience, <laughs> wow. and then my wife would leave me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, a look at the current state of the toy industry with expert Chris Byrne. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Goodbye, no more No, I never knew you would all you had. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. We talked earlier in the show about Walmart and Target and their respective toy sales being less than robust. This weekend, the American International Toy Fair is being held in New York City. So earlier this week, producer Matt Greer checked in with Chris Byrne. He's been following the toy industry for more than 30 years. Mac kicked off the conversation by asking Chris Byrne about the big event in New York. What is your headline? Uh, help. No, my headline, <laughs> my headline is there's a lot of uh, uncertainty. People are optimistic. 
but there's a lot of uncertainty going into the year. And where does that uncertainty come from? Is it the coronavirus? Is it just the weakness in toy sales in general? Where is that uncertainty coming from? It's coming from a lot of places. Last year, of course, the threat of tariffs was causing all kinds of havoc uh, in the fourth quarter with the early orders for spring 2020. Uh, That seems to be resolved for now. Uh, But then the coronavirus is having a significant impact on on production. I've heard stories that people can't even get their samples for Toy Fair out of China. Uh, We're going to be delaying manufacturing for at least three weeks, which isn't the end of the world. But when you consider all the manufacturing and then all the shipping and everything that has to happen, uh, it's going to push tight deadlines even further. So there's a lot of concern about that. I've also heard about toys that were slated for 2020, but simply cannot be produced now and are now on the on the docket for 2021. So there's a lot of uncertainty about that. The, the Chinese delegation that's been a, a mainstay at Toy Fair here in New York for years is not coming. There's a lot of uncertainty. And do we expect any Baby Yoda sightings? <laughs> well, Baby Yoda is one of those, those uh, phenomena that came along. And yes, uh, Funko has already got the Baby Yoda out on the market. It's their best-selling figure ever. Uh, we've got stuff coming from both Hasbro and Mattel with Baby Yoda. Those people who've been clamoring for it will 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 find themselves satisfied uh, mid-year, probably. And Chris, were you surprised that Baby Yoda wasn't ready to go for the holidays? I actually was, and I think it I think it really speaks to a change in how people consume entertainment. Uh, we are all eager to know about whatever rumors we hear about the iPhone a year in advance, and people are leaking stuff. And to Disney's credit, they they do a great job of keeping the surprises together, you know, keeping the surprises under wraps. But I think in this changing market that somebody might have said, hey, maybe we should uh, tease baby Yoda and be ready to go. But again, it's a fad, and no one can predict a fad. So it's just one of those things that that happened, and... uh, I think it'll keep going so that by mid-year, people really have their baby Yodas. A big picture question here. Are toys dying? Oh, no. Well, no, and, no now, hold on, because the reason I ask that is obviously electronics and video games are becoming more and more popular. So it seems like that window where a kid is playing with a traditional or a physical toy is getting shorter and shorter. So, yeah, are toys dying? No, toys are definitely not dying. Uh the, fortunately, the species does not evolve as quickly as technology does. Kids still love the tactile play. You look at the success of things like slime and other compounds. You look at Lego's uh, continued success. You look at the ways in which kids are playing games with one another. So there's still room for traditional toys. The challenge is that people are buying less stuff overall and not just in the toy industry. So there is somewhat of a decline. The other trend we're seeing is that there's been a big boom in less expensive toys, whether it's collectibles from companies like MGA or Yulu or any of the or Moose or any of those people uh, who are making great low price collectible toys. People are spending actually less money. And we saw that with a four percent decline in the U.S. and a three percent decline overall globally in the toy industry last year. And let's talk about that, because you mentioned that decline. Um, Target and Walmart, a couple of retailers that cited weak toy sales over the holiday quarter. When you look at the retail landscape in toys, what jumps out at you? Well, I think even though it's been over a year since uh, Toys R Us left the marketplace, I think we are just now beginning to feel the full effect of that. 
Toys R Us was a phenomenal place for people to go and encounter toys and buy things they might not have seen otherwise. Walmart and Target, just by the nature of their, their companies and their structures, cannot carry as many, as many products as a Toys R Us did. So there are fewer products in those high-traffic uh, retailers. And the challenge is also one of marketing, is getting kids to want, to want the toys and ask for them. And secondarily, with the rise of online sales, we're losing those incremental sales. Mom and dad are not walking through Target and saying, hey, we love that game. Let's throw that in the cart as well. So you're really seeing uh, a, a confluence of factors that are that are causing uh, overall sales to decline. And Chris, I want to talk more about trends in the big picture. At what age do kids shift to playing with electronics as their primary mode of play, you know, versus traditional physical tactile toys? Typically, the the sort of sweet spot for for mass market or highly promoted toys is about four to eight. We are seeing some trends in what we call fandom, which are older kids buying things. I mean, that's really what's, what's made Funko do so well. Certainly Hasbro with their action figures. These are toys toys that are sold to an older consumer who is staying connected to the entertainment properties they love and using them as part of being, being part of a community. We see it in cosplay. We see it in Comic-Con. We see this engagement with these characters and and the related toys. Let's talk classic toys. In terms of the classic toys, what's holding up well? We see a lot of classic toys doing very well. Uh, Etch-a-Sketch is still around. Games, Monopoly still still does very well. Stuffed animals do very well. Barbie, of course, had a great year last year. So did Hot Wheels. Uh, Barbie just celebrated 60 years. Hot Wheels is something like 53 this year. So those classic play patterns are still things that kids love and gravitate to. Chris, you mentioned Barbie, and I was struck by just the varieties of different Barbies these days. Well, I think one of the things that, that Barbie has always done has been to move with the times. You can't be a toy and not move with the times and be around for 60 years. And I think one of the cool things about Barbie now uh, is that she reflects the diversity of the culture more than ever before. And we see body styles, hairstyles, skin tones, all of these things that make Barbie look like the world children see around them. It was one thing in 1959 when everybody dreamed of being a blonde Malibu beach girl. But today we want something a little bit more uh, reflective of the world kids see. And along those lines, how about giving Ken a bit of a beer gut? Are we going to get there? Or? <laughs> Really, that would be what the kids are seeing, right? Uh, a little, a little more. Uh, but, but I think that you know, Kim is still kind of in the background. You know, I don't know. Sixty years with no commitment, I'd be a little concerned too. Yeah, very commitment averse. Let's talk <laughs> about um, the two big toy makers. When you look at Hasbro and you look at Mattel, who do you think is better positioned going forward? Well, I think they're both in in a good position. Mattel is coming off a better than expected year and is is well positioned with some great new products going into 2020. Hasbro has done very well in diversifying into a children's entertainment company. The acquisition of E1 uh, has been very good for them with with properties like Peppa Pig and and if you don't know Peppa Pig, she's a wonderful character and generates from what I've heard, approximately a billion dollars a year in merchandise sales. So that's a huge international property. They've got other entertainment brands out there through E1. So I think it's something Hasbro does really well 
and their ability to diversify into experiential marketing as well. There was a Nerf uh, event that toured around last year that was very popular. So kids got to come in and play play actively with Nerf products, not necessarily buy them, but you could when you were leaving if you wanted to. As we wrap up here, the New York Toy Fair playing out this weekend, it's only February, but is this when we start to see what the next hot holiday toys might be? Well, certainly that's what the manufacturers hope for. And and I'll tell you one that I've seen that I think is going to be huge. And it's, it's one that I saw in Hong Kong and it had tons of people around all the time. It's called Go-Go Bird. It's a remote control flying bird. It looks like a parrot. It's going to be under $40. It's got artificial intelligence. And it really is sort of the perfect marriage of electronics, technology, and classic play. And I think it's, it's coming out. I, a company called Zing has acquired it. Uh, for distribution, and I think it's going to be the ones you're going to be seeing a lot of this year. Chris, we're a show for investors. So what are a few names that investors should be looking at as they look at the toy industry here? I definitely think you should be looking at Hasbro and Mattel and how they are able to diversify into entertainment to to continue to grow their businesses, uh, You know, whether through acquisition or, or new initiatives. I think that's definitely important to look for. I think it's important to look for some of the smaller companies that might be uh, acquisition targets as as they grow. Small companies like Play Monster, which is doing some really uh, great stuff, and they're, they're fairly quiet. So it, it's sort of looking at what's selling, looking at what kids are interested in, and looking for the products that go against those and seem fairly forward-looking and at the same time being classic. And of course, you've got huge companies like MGA, which is a private company, but they are they are really leading the charge with a lot of the creativity. So looking for the creativity, looking for the innovation, and how to expand beyond just basic play. If you want to shake up your workplace a little, check out Chris Byrne's book. It's entitled Funny Business, Harnessing the Power of Play to Give Your Company a Competitive Advantage. Up next, we'll dip into the full mailbag and we'll give you three stocks for your watch list. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. And when he left and he told about the man with all the toys. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, and Ron Gross. Our email address is radio at fool.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter at Motley Fool Money. Question from Ted who asks, What do you think of Virgin Galactic and the wild ride the stock has taken lately? Uh, yeah, I mean, for all the talk, and it is warranted, about Tesla and the rise of Tesla, you look at shares, Jason, of Virgin Galactic, I think that's up five times since last December. It has moved very quickly in a short period of time. For a um, space company that isn't it, really, you know. That doesn't have anything yet. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't really, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the thing here is. Um, for me personally, Virgin Galactic, I love the concept. I hope to go to space one day. Seriously, I'm not kidding. But let's separate personal aspirations from reality here. And the reality is that this is a brand new company to the public markets. They, for all intents and purposes, make no money at all. Um, I'm talking about Dropbox and promises made <laughs> or promises that need to be kept. That's essentially what this company is right now, is promises that have been made in the form of space flights. And so, middle of last year, as, as they were getting ready to, to you know, go public. They had they had talked about having booked more than six hundred 
tourist customers backed by over $80 million in deposits. And that's all fine and dandy. I mean, that's wonderful. But we have to re- remember they, they need to deliver on that promise. And then, furthermore, you have to wonder okay, what is it beyond space tourism? I mean, space tourism is cool, but that's going to be a very limited swath of the population. And I don't know how many repeat purchases that's going to garner. So, for me, when I think about this business, I think about what are they going to do beyond that? For me, the question is, what do they do with this technology and this capability? That's where I think it could get really interesting, because the competitive advantage here is in the form of barriers to entry. The know-how and the finances involved with building up this business and the capability. So, I think it's a fascinating business. It's one that I'm going to continue to follow. But I see no reason to rush into this. If you're if you're a stockholder today and you're loving these gains, please remember that these gains are the product <laughs> of speculation and not business performance. Yeah, speaking to your question, Jason, I think what got, has some investors excited is a, a report out of Morgan Stanley that they see the commercial space-based travel industry as potentially being worth $800 billion, and not just from rich people taking trips into space, but because it could disrupt the airline business. Yeah. Um, and and uh, that would be, be something. That's, that's, that's years off. It is. Years it is. Off. And I like that. I like that thinking in the market. I mean, I, I will go back to that interview that we had with Christian Davenport uh, here a little while back. Remember, he wrote that book, The Space Barons. And I asked him that question. I said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm 47 years old. Am I going to be able to go to space in my lifetime? Will I be able to go to the moon? And he 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 wasn't 100%. He thinks it probably could happen. But, but I, I say this just to give people an idea of what kind of timeline we're talking about here. This is something that's going to take a lot of years to play out. So, I think it's okay to be patient with this one. Sure, Jason. But if you go to virgingalactic.com, it's a really cool website. <laughs> the rockets look amazing and terrifying, too. It's yeah. just but amazing technology. But what they do have going for this business, what it has going for it, is it's the only pure play stock out there. So, like Beyond Meat for a long time, Tesla, if people want to invest in the space, this is how they can do it. And invest is maybe too strong of a word, but if you want to speculate in this space, yeah. this is your one way to. But like you said, it's. Yeah, complete speculation. Got SpaceX and Blue Origin out there doing the same kind of thing, but you're right. This is this is the only real investable option today, and I'm sure that attracts a lot of interest. Question from Cameron Howe in New York City, who asks, "Would you be comfortable holding Amazon if Jeff Bezos suddenly stopped running the company for some reason with no transition? I feel great with Amazon <laughs> making up 15% of my portfolio because of the businesses and Jeff Bezos. Is there a Tim Cook equivalent?" Waiting in the wings, uh, obviously a reference to uh, Steve Jobs and his passing, and Tim Cook, the longtime operator, waiting in the wings. I I own Amazon. Yeah, I don't know who's waiting in the wings. Uh, there's no been no name successor, and the stock would certainly get smacked if all of a sudden Bezos left suddenly. <laughs> um, so that would be bad. Um, there are some very talented people at Amazon, obviously. There are CEOs that are uh, head of the Amazon web service business and the worldwide consumer business, respectively. You could see, potentially, if there's a day where Bezos left, where the company would be broken into two pieces, and each of those CEOs would run the respective uh, business unit. I think that would be a, a perfectly fine uh, solution to what would be a pretty big deal. Yeah, I think that you want to own businesses that are so simple that almost anyone could run them. And Amazon, I don't know that it is so simple. Two hundred eighty billion in revenue all around the world with different AWS and all their different retail arms, advertising now, et cetera. I agree with Ron. You need to have the different heads of the current departments stay stay in in their places. 
and then try to find someone who can tie it all together and be what Bezos is. But Bezos is, uh, what is he, one in a, well, let's not even go there. <laughs> one in a trillion. He, yeah, to find someone that driven and who has some sort of vision that you can't really put your finger on it, but he's got it and he seems to still have it. Yeah, it would, it would be rocky for the stock for a while, I'm sure. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? I'm going to circle back around to Hasbro, H-A-S, and I'm doing some work on Hasbro to understand how the coronavirus will impact 2020 results and how big a deal this will be, since they do source a significant percentage of toys from China. Uh, the stock has underperformed recently, both on tariff concerns and coronavirus uh, concerns. Interesting news on Friday, they did announce that they'll retain the master toy licenses for Disney's Star Wars and Marvel brands. Disney relationship is a really important one for them. Partner brand revenue rose 24% in the last year. Frozen 2, Avengers, Spider-Man, Star Wars, all getting it done for them. Dan, question about Hasbro? Certainly, Chris. So I, uh, I was born in the mid '80s, and the Hasbro IP that is uh, the biggest to me is Transformers. <laughs> so, Ron, uh, quick question for you: What's your favorite Transformer? <laughs> oh, that is mean to do to me. I've neither seen the movies nor owned a Transformer. They have like interesting, like uh, Cornelius type names, don't they? Investor. That's part of the, that's part of the apes, I think. <laughs> Ron, you could have said like 240 volts. Uh, <laughs> Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Uh, yeah, digging more into Synaptics, uh, ticker S-Y-N-A for the uh, for our augmented reality service. Synaptics makes its money by selling their technology and chips and firmware and software to some of the world's largest uh, OEMs or original equipment manufacturers for things like mobile products, PCs, uh, and even those voice-controlled products that we speak to every day. Uh, but they also make technology for those head-mounted displays that are uh, taking up more and more shares, augmented and virtual reality. Um, Pick up, pick up steam, and there's a big question to me as far as uh, some revenue uh, decline from a year ago. Uh, trying to figure out exactly how uh, big a problem that's going to be, but uh, definitely an interesting business. Dan, question about Synaptics? Certainly. So, AR, VR, that's all cool. But what I'm interested in is Bionics. And Jason, if there's one part of you that you're going to improve through the use of Bionic technology, what are we talking? Man, that's a good one. Maybe uh, probably go with my eyes. I think it's just really nice to be able to see, and my vision's leaving me. Jeff Fisher, what do you got? Pinterest tickers P I N S social media site with three hundred twenty monthly, three hundred twenty million monthly users, up nine percent in twenty nineteen. One point one billion in revenue compared to Facebook at seventy billion. They're just starting to monetize their traffic. Uh, Dan. Jeff, how do I make Pinterest show my wife less expensive things? Oh, Pinterest is very good at getting users to buy products there. People go there to find ideas to then purchase, which makes it that's part of its power. What do you got, Dan? I'm uh, I'm actually with Ron on this oh, one. I'm hey, breaking hey, my streak hey. with the Disney and Marvel Danny thing for Hasbro. Hey. All right, we're out of time. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Pizza tonight for dinner. Are I'm you? gonna have a couple of beers with mm. that pizza. Yeah. That sounds delicious. Yes. Homemade pizza? Oh yeah. 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 On the grill? I, I am. Um, as no, well. Yeah, I'm not. I don't do it on the grill. I actually do it in the oven because I got a pizza stone and I can get yeah. it really, really hot. And um, I got just a really good dough recipe that just has nice. worked out well. So. Nice.
Do you put the pizza, you put it on the stone, right? Yeah. Yeah, you throw the stone in the oven, you preheat it as high as you can. Yep. Exactly. And then you sit, let it sit for like an hour, let the stone warm up, and then you throw the pizza on the stone, right? That is the key. Is I've never done it, but you that's... You hit the nail on okay. it. you got to throw that stone in there, preheat the oven as hot as it'll go, and then let that stone heat for 30 minutes. Yes. Okay. And yeah. then once it gets to that... And one little tip. Uh, to make to help with the dough not sticking, take a little bit of cornmeal flour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sprinkle that yeah. bad boy. Semolina. Okay. I still sometimes Love screw it, it up. The little. F- flip with the thing. You all get it on smooth each peel? time? Yeah. Well, I, I I don't skimp on the semolina, so yeah. it just slides right off. Yeah. The other thing I do is once it's once the pizza's been in for a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. uh, the longest kitchen knife I have, just go run wow. that along the bottom. So the other mm-hmm. thing I do that I found actually this really, is way more valuable than yeah. the Dropbox conversation. This is coming helpful for me. This is coming at the end of the show for the <laughs> yeah. for the podcast listeners. Is I, I mean, I slide the dough on the stone and then top the pizza off oh, on the stone because every once in a while, all oh. it takes is one time. If you have it all made and then you try to get the it's weight a, of the pizza yeah, can screw yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that once, and you'll oh, never. Yeah. I started making grandma too. pizzas in a pan, to, so I don't have to deal with that. Oh man! But it's yeah, it's the just, crust is so much better your way. You Wait, just gotta, who, whose grandma are we talking about? It's called the <laughs> like grandma. A Sicilian pizza. grandma. You just don't don't oh, okay. skimp on the semolina, and that really is All the right. deal. There we go. And oh, then yeah, I think yeah. top the pizza once it gets on the stone. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, don't make okay. make the pie on the stone. See, well, come for the stocks. Yeah. Stay for the pizza. My goodness. All right.